welcome to Didian Hawthorne in the In-Between, or DH&I. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz, and you're listening to our podcast about the relevance of literature in the 21st century. Now bookmark that book, and let's begin. Today's show uses a variety of sound effects and dramatic readings to heighten the effect produced by its content. But spooks and scares are not for everyone, so if you're easily terrified, proceed with caution. Good morning, y'all. Welcome to our especially spooktastic show today. I am so excited to finally be releasing these horrifying classics episodes for y'all. I worked so hard on them and as well on the new website that just came out. So please sit back and enjoy. Don't let that warning from 20 seconds ago scare you. Everything will be fine. It is very gory, so that is the warning, but I think it'll be okay. Since this is the first episode of the season, I wanted to quickly explain how I organized these episodes. Some things have changed since the last time we did horrifying classics in the show. Every book, similar to last year, will have its own categories for analysis based on what stood out the most upon an initial reading. But throughout the series and at the end of every episode, we will be trying to answer two controlling questions about the work of Stephen King, which I hope to definitively have the answers for by the end of the series. Let's start out today with a one-minute summary and a note on the readability of the book, plot spoilers to follow, of course. Misery by Stephen King was first published in 1987, one year after It, and alongside two other novels, The Dark Tower, The Drawing of Three, and The Tommy Knockers. This novel is fiction, it's a psychological thriller, and it is particularly gruesome. It's 440 pages on average and has two performance adaptations, a film directed by Rob Reiner in 1990 and a stage play produced in 2015. I personally read the audiobook version of the book. I found it to be quite good and would actually recommend a digitized version of it because of the stagnance of the plot and setting, which we'll get into in a moment, but suffice now to say that the pace is quite slow and having someone read it for you makes it, I think, a very compelling experience. The premise of the novel is that author Paul Sheldon gets into a car wreck right at the outset of a particularly grim snowstorm just outside of Sidewinder, Colorado, which you might recognize as the same setting from The Shining. He was there finishing a book called Fast Cars, a continuation of what he himself considers to be his quote-unquote real work though he is best known for producing a series of Victorian-era historical romance novels starring the charming Misery. The start of the book outlines a barely coherent Paul Sheldon on the brink of death, drugged out of his mind, his body from the waist down seemingly pulverized from the accident. Eventually he wakes up and is met by Annie, his self-proclaimed number one fan, who, as we also quickly learn, is severely mentally ill. She's a nurse who is forced into retirement from a string of cases accusing her of killing infants. In other words, the dilemma that is introduced in the beginning of the book and carries through to the end is that while Annie is Paul's captor, his torturer, and his greatest fear, she is also the only reason why he survived the car wreck and continues towards a swift recovery. Annie, you see, is obsessed with the Misery novels, and lucky for Paul, he's just released a new novel that has killed Misery, Annie's favorite character. To give you an idea of what a typical week at Annie's place is like, she often deprives him of necessities like food and water for days as she goes off to what she calls her, quote, laughing place, unquote, to wind down after psychotic episodes that include binge eating and disturbing self-harm. 
Paul, from his accident, becomes quickly addicted to strong painkillers, and she will deprive him of those and keep him in agony for hours on end, after sins that she perceives to be his fault, which are not, and keep in mind that he is entirely bedridden, with no movement at this point in the narrative. She often also subjects him to gruesome games, such as a particularly memorable incident where she throws a bowl of soup up against the wall, waits days before cleaning it, and then makes Paul drink the soapy rinse water with a rag still in the bucket. She also made Paul burn the only copy of his newly completed manuscript of Fast Cars, which took him years to write and was, in his opinion, his best work. Paul endures not only extreme physical torture, but also stiff mental torture as well. As Paul's recovery progresses, the torture gets worse. With increased mobility on his part and with help from a wheelchair that Annie brought in comes increased opportunity for terror. Paul manages to escape his room two or three times within several months, the first time snatching painkillers from the bathroom and a latter time finding Annie's scrapbook that contains a list of over 30 of her murders. Other concerns for Paul include the building snow outside, snow that refuses to melt even in good weather, and a total sense of isolation as the entire novel for the most part takes place in a single house in a single room. Of course, as the book progresses and the snow begins to melt, clues to Paul's disappearance surface, such as his wrecked car, as well as Annie's unproven but suspicious track record, but not before Annie succeeds in convincing Paul to bring back Misery in another sequel, fittingly entitled Misery's Return, and along the way cuts off his left foot with an axe and gives him what he terms a thumbectomy, the former incident of which was described in excruciating detail. In the movie, she apparently only hobbles him by shattering his ankle bones beyond repair, but do not be mistaken, in the book she absolutely cuts his foot off with an axe. At the end of the narrative, Paul manages to desperately pull together a plan that kills Annie, first with fire and then with a decrepit 50-pound typewriter. He wakes up to find two policemen who report that Annie was missing from her supposed place of death, terrifying, and the narrative flips for the first time to the perspective of the police officer who describes Paul as the result of all he has been through in another very disturbing passage. They do find Annie's dead body some distance away as she was trying to retrieve a chainsaw for Paul when she did eventually die, but the most terrifying part of the entire book, in my opinion, was the ending when Paul has moved back to New York and hallucinates Annie coming back for him and attacking him one final time. This is, of course, before we knew that she was dead in the first place, and I have to say that that was one of those moments that kept the lights on in the hallway at my house that night. In terms of setting, I've touched on this before, but I love it when artists use such a limited setting for the majority of a work. What is interesting and perhaps different about Misery in particular is that while the room that Paul is in is superficially described, such as with passages about the cracks along the ceiling that he has to look up at in bed, um, the sense of detail of the physical room itself is not that obsessed over. There's a bed and the typewriter and a little ashtray full of paper clips that becomes important at one point, but those are not pined over in the way that one would expect given the amount of time that Paul is spending in the room. And I actually think that the effect is very interesting here, because instead of focusing on the claustrophobia of the room, Paul focuses on the claustrophobia of the situation. 
He is more caught up in circular thinking about notions like his immobility, the locks on the door, the fact that he's snowed in, his pain, so much so that the setting itself seems inconsequential. In this situation in particular, that's effective because it creates more investment in the narrative through this situational stagnance, instead of through things like superficial detail. The narrative effectively becomes about the face value of Paul's survival, rather than what Paul is surviving, and where. That is a bold claim, I know, but my evidence for this also lies at the end of the book when Paul's publisher suggests that he writes a memoir of his experiences in Annie's home. The publisher, seriously or not, suggests that the book would be worth millions of dollars. We know Paul to be not a shallow person, but we know that he's very interested in money. But Paul abandons the idea almost immediately, thinking internally that he will always be reliving his experiences, no use memorializing them because he survived and that's the end of it. In terms of believability of the narrative, I think it was obvious from my summary of the novel that I found it absolutely gruesome and terrifying. Gruesome is the right word, by the way. I know I keep using it, but it's just the only word that I can think of. I love horror literature. All of the spooks in one room sign me up, but I do have to admit that the claustrophobia of the novel and the constant paranoia that it produced, and perhaps that was heightened because I read the novel in three days, but all of that really had an effect on me, and I was ultimately very impressed with the believability of a story that seems to now be a classic horror trope. I'm thinking that perhaps the part that I struggled most to believe was this um, number of people that Annie had killed and subsequently gotten away with, all these murders, over 30, especially given the situation with so many people looking at her, so much scrutiny given to her, um, especially when she was murdering babies in the maternity ward in Boulder. It just, that part didn't seem as plausible to me as the rest of it, that she got away. Another aspect that I feel may have been less believable for some people would have been her unkillability because she just would not die in the face of so much physical trauma, especially at the end as Paul is trying to kill her. She literally is stuffing flaming things down her throat and bludgeoning her with a typewriter, but part of why I believed her refusal to die and was scared of her increasing return and her likelihood of return was Paul's increasing belief that she was a goddess, quote-unquote, like the real goddess that he was writing into Misery's Return. So the interplay between his constant running thoughts and the excerpts from Misery's Return as he's writing it that are actually uh, excerpted in the book, um, these simple correlations and the receptiveness of such correlations and how repetitive they are, they just occur over and over and over again in Paul's mind, were enough for me to believe her fortitude by the end of the novel. Finally, I can also see an argument for the fact that King draws out the story to be so long to be a bit unbelievable. There are maybe half a dozen escape attempts or close calls, such as when Paul escapes the room or when the state troopers come multiple times and get murdered. And yes, that constant cyclic nature of the narrative was tiring after a while, but I don't think that ultimately affected the believability of the narrative um, because of the way it was written. I actually think that King took great care in crafting a narrative that was stagnant and full of paranoia, but still felt very real. So our two questions that we will be controlling for throughout this series this year, number one, is King a regionalist writer? And number two, can we map out King's work thematically? So 
In terms of is King a regionalist, Misery was the first book that I read by Stephen King, so all the evidence thus far says he's a regionalist because we just don't have any other books. I know that The Shining also takes place in the same area near Sidewinder, Colorado, which is really creepy because I've actually been there before, so I know exactly what that area is like, especially in the winter, but all the signs are there in my experience with him thus far. The isolation and the constant obsession with factors relating to place and um, constructing the narrative based on place as well as the consistency of his writing about one place repeatedly, those are all things that point to him being a regionalist writer, at least on the surface with the experience that we have with this novel and with superficial knowledge of The Shining, which we'll review in a few weeks. My guess though is that that assessment might change in the future, we will see. The second question, can we map out King's work thematically? This particular question is hard to address because we have nothing yet to compare this one to. Um, as I just mentioned, we, did, we know from the beginning that this book was published one year after it was published, so I find it interesting that some of his most popular or lasting works today come in such close proximity to each other. But if we really look into it, Carrie, for instance, was published in 1974, more than a decade before, and that was followed by Salem's Lot in 1975, as well as The Shining in 1977. And the sequel to The Shining, Dr. Sleep, didn't come out until the early 2000s, so I'm not seeing much correlation in terms of time frame with his work. I am interested in seeing if there are maybe certain similarities between it and this novel compared to Carrie and The Shining, but as yet, I have no idea. I see maybe some correlation between his writing this novel in the 80s, um, when, for example, Michael Jackson's Thriller had just come out, or when Wuthering Heights by Kate Bush was popular. I see some maybe Victorian era correlations there um, with Wuthering Heights and with Misery. Um, so there may be a way of sort of culturally mapping his work by decade. That's my... That is my guess so far. Again though, we just don't have enough information yet to properly answer the question, so we'll have to wait until next week with Carrie by Stephen King to understand a bit more. If you enjoyed the discussion and would like to hear more from me, there's a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our brand new website, relevanceofliterature.com, for links to our entire back catalog of episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or join our Facebook group. Our handle is at DidianIn, two ends total for both of those. And finally, if you want to support the show, help keep it ad-free, and get access to our new private podcast, go to patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature and sign up to become a sponsor. All of the relevant links, as always, are in the description box down below. Still there? One more thing then, remember that leaving a comment or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other Guilty Pleasure podcast platform helps leverage the show so that other literature enthusiasts can find the community. In other words, it helps a ton. Auf Wiedersehen!